So again, sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease for yourself. I just finished a 10-day retreat in the residential retreat center with a number of the other Spirit Rock teachers and about a hundred practitioners that was, um, as they often are, it was quite wonderful, um, but somehow it felt even more um, dedicated, if you will, I believe partly because of the times that we're in. People were both grateful to be on retreat and motivated in some way to look deeply inside. So I began to reflect, coming back from that retreat, on what kind of teachings from the Buddhist tradition might be of use during this time, this week, and perhaps in the weeks ahead. And it seems important, although uh, valuable to talk about the current situation in the world, to also speak of those truths or understandings that are timeless, that are beyond the current situation and dilemma. And in particular, to look for ways that help us keep our heart open and clear in this time. In the Buddha's teachings, it is said that the mind is naturally clear and radiant. Luminous is this mind, says the Buddha, brightly shining, though it becomes colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and thus they do not have wisdom of the mind. Luminous is this mind brightly shining when it is free of attachments. Thus the noble followers of the way truly understand, and for them there is indeed wisdom of the mind. There is a reality of consciousness that is part of our human nature beyond all the circumstances of joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame, that we can discover, rest in, understand, from which the dilemmas and the circumstances of life can be met wisely. We all know, I mean, it's almost uh, too obvious to repeat that the cause of our sufferings in the world, whether it's individual or collective, comes from the human heart, primarily. As the Buddha said, suffering is caused by greed, hatred, and delusion. And the ordinary person looks at the results, while the wise person looks into the causes if they're suffering and difficulty. The wise person looks into the causes. So in a way, we are asked in these times to look into our own hearts and see and remember that place of freedom, openness, timeless peace, 
and at the same time to look at and understand how to work with the forces of greed, hatred, fear, delusion, confusion, and so forth that are so strong in this human realm from the perspective of wisdom. Plato remarked at one point, only the dead have known the end of war. It's a kind of depressing statement, isn't it? <laughs> but unfortunately, it's been accurate so far for the last 2,300 years or however long ago Plato made that statement. Um, and I might hope that it doesn't remain accurate in centuries ahead, but so far for this human realm, that's actually the reality, isn't it? I was talking the other day with my mother about this, who's very upset about the world situation. And she said, she said, you teach in Buddhism that people are basically good, that our hearts are basically good. I said, that's right, Mom. She said, well, she said, I think 95% of people are basically good and that the other 5% are so badly hurt or so badly traumatized in some way that we couldn't call them good at this point, although they, underneath that might be there. But it's only a small amount. That was her, her philosophy of the day. So that day I was meeting with another teacher here, Robert Hall, who was a psychiatrist and founder of the Lomi School, has done work both individually and collectively for, for many, many decades. And we were talking about my mother's statement, Robert and I. And I said, Robert, what do you think? Is, do, do, you have, do you have any sense of this? He said, that sounds pretty, pretty much right to me, that mostly we're good, and then there's some who are so wounded, so much in pain, that they can't touch that goodness so easily. And I said, so when you meet someone like that in your work with groups, because Robert's done all these decades of group work, what do you do when you have a group of, of people who are very good-hearted and then 5% of the group, one person or two people, are violent, um, are dis destructive, are uh, filled with hatred or anger and so forth? What do you do in your work? And he said, well... First, I breathe. Remember this, right? This is going to be a theme tonight. First, I breathe. That is to make space. Then I acknowledge this is what's happening. And then I try to give that person the attention that's needed, if they're destructive or acting out or whatever is happening, to give them attention. And I enlist the others in the group as well. I say, this is what's going on in our group. It's true, he said, that one person in a group can take over the whole energy of the others. Everybody knows that. As can a small group of people in a very large society who are acting in some very strong way take the whole attention and energy of the society. He said, so what I do is to give them that attention because you have to. And he and I were kind of going back and forth because we've run groups together. I said, yeah, yeah, exactly, that's what we do. I said, then, all right, suppose it gets worse. Suppose, what do we do when it gets out of control? And he said, well, then there's a certain point where that person may need to be restrained for their own good or the good of the other people, possibly even locked up for their good or the good of other people. But most important, we actually have to pay attention and work with that energy. So the question for us in our practice at this point 
is how do we work with the energies that are touched in us by the terrorist attack in New York and by all the upheaval in the society and the world since then. What do we do? We all have been shocked at some point. But then, being shaken up, we can get very touchy, or it will affect our own trauma, and we get frightened, uh, deeply afraid, or touch the grief that we carry, or we become on edge or quick to judge one another. All of these kinds of things get activated in us. And it's not just then those people, whoever you or them is, who need to do the work of the heart at this time, but all of us. How can a troubled mind understand the way, says the Buddha? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. How's that? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. And once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even a beloved mother or father. So we, too, have the responsibility to learn to work with our mind and all the energies within us. And the Buddha's instructions on discovering the freedom of heart, purity, the end of grief, the realization of liberation that is possible for you as a human being. He says, sit quietly, establish a quality of awareness and presence, breath, body, feelings in mind. He said, then become aware when desire and anger, when fear or agitation, when doubt or remorse arise. Become aware also when they vanish. Discover for yourself how they arise, what conditions bring these into your experience, and what it means to free yourself from their grasp. Then, he goes on, you will know what it means to experience joy and ease, trust and equanimity and great compassion. How do we work with the energies in ourself? First important thing is the truth that we can't avoid them, just as we can't avoid suffering. Anybody here who's been able to avoid fear, judgment, doubt, confusion, anger, raise your hand. You can have your five dollars back. <laughs> In fact, these are part of the impersonal forces that run the, that run the lives of human beings in this human realm at, the to- at, at many times. They run the world. The world often runs on desire and greed, on hatred and prejudice, on racism and fear, as much as it also runs on understanding and love. They're big forces. And when we are caught in them, they keep us from seeing clearly. They keep our hearts from being soft and tender and connected with one another and this amazing earth that we're born into. So then the Buddha gives a number of the common examples that come in meditation. 
but I want to think about them tonight as they come in the course of our weeks, this time in the year 2001, in the fall of 2001. And how do we work with them to begin to examine? One of the first of these energies that come and are difficult for us, says the Buddha, is the energy of greed and desire and wanting. And we need to look at it as a cause in ourselves and in the world because it can be the source of tremendous suffering or, when understood, it can be the place of great liberation for us. First is to see it clearly. It is the state in us or in others that is not satisfied, that needs, that wants. And whether it's wanting more money or appreciation or a certain kind of security or beautiful things or certain kinds of pleasure or whatever it is, sometimes it's just the littlest thing. It's amazing. People can be on retreat and after a week or so there's you know, there's really not much going on. Um, not much entertainment, you know, just your own <laughs> mind, which is kind of like, the, I don't know, the shopping channel or something <laughs> over and over again. And so there's nothing big to want, and the little want will come and tap you on the shoulder and say, well, you know, if only we could get one of those nice little meditation benches. I mean, you start in the beginning and you want like a nice big estate on the bay and a, you know, a, a, and a, the perfect lover and great vacations and so forth. But after a while you'll settle for, you know, I just want a sitting where my back doesn't hurt so much and a kind of a nice spot in the meditation hall where not near the door where people won't disturb me. And you see that no matter what situation, even in a prison cell where there's very little options, this, the wanting mind still comes. Where we are isn't enough. It's not just the outer things, but even more deeply it's in the heart as a need to be seen and recognized and acknowledged. Another kind of very deep wanting. Someone said it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all. <laughs> so this is a really big force. And it comes all the time in our own lives. And it drives the world. Endless longing, greed, have this, get that, do that, more and more, instead of contentment. How do we work with it when you breathe? Can you actually feel the wanting and not be lost in it? And it's very personal as well as collective. In a new book by Oriah Mountain Dreamer called The Dance, who did that, she wrote the poem, The Initiation. She tells a story of helping at a big local book fair where there, there was a speaker who came who was sort of a new age speaker, well known. And she was, because her book was going to come out or something, she was helping. Um, at the table there with the books and things like that. and She wasn't so into the New Age teachings, but anyway, everybody else who was there seemed enthralled with it. 
and and finally at the end, you know, she was um, there at the table helping to distribute the books and so forth. And one woman approached her as she was packing things up and asked about one of the meditation techniques that the speaker had said will change your life and get you everything you need and bring positive energy into your body and find you the right relationship and get you all the money and you know that kind of sell or whatever. <laughs> Deliver the power to manifest whatever you want. As if getting what you want would actually satisfy you. You know what happens when you get what you want, don't you? You want something else because wanting's endless. This small, thin woman in an oversized parka who introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to have a group to help them. It's hard to keep discipline up on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my own irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know if it's working? This was exactly the thing I detested, the quest for the quick fix, the desire for guaranteed outcomes, the simple answer. Do this and you'll have everything you always wanted. I took a deep breath, looked at her, said, well, meditation is more of a process than a goal-oriented activity, and went into this whole spiel about there's no way to know how quickly it will happen, trying to talk her out of the deluded state of mind. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat and started to veer away. But she grabbed my arm really strongly and said, but what I really want to know is, will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or someone out there listening, something really with me? A wave of desperation swept out from her through me and I was surprised to find my eyes filling with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work quickly because she was afraid she simply wasn't going to make it through months and years in her life. So it's really important when we see the wanting and longing that is in us as human beings and the grief that it touches for not being seen and not being acknowledged that we can honor and hold it with respect and compassion. All that's happened has put so many people in a vulnerable state and there are all these things we want. A lot of it's just for comfort to feel that things are okay. And at the same time, we also have to look if we're honorable in the causes and we breathe and we realize we can be with our own wanting. We have to look and see that there are some ways in which the wanting of our society is out of control and that some of the causes, certainly for why we are hated or why people are angriest, at us in other parts of the world have to do with our collective greed. I mean, if you want to understand the politics of the Middle East and over the last 50 years, there's only one simple thing you need to study. 
oil, money. Seriously, if you want to find out who the players are and what's been going on, that will illuminate it very, very deeply. Or another word for it is greed. And we all participate in our own ways in a society that has, perhaps unfortunately, marketed its values, which include consumerism, you know, and lack of the sacred. It's kind of lost in our culture. Trying, we, we market it all around the world, and so other places become, in a certain way, colonized. Think of the things that are killing us as a nation, said John Gatto, New York City Teacher of the Year. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our brand of schooling is producing in our youth. And then it goes out to the rest of the world in some ways. Men and women are free to choose anything in economic societies except to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in economics and the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. I don't mean to say that capitalism is bad. There are good things about it. But greed is bad for us and for the rest of the world. And so somehow we have to, in our vulnerability, look at our own longings and needs and the longings and needs of our society honorably and tenderly and remember that they are not who we really are. How to work with these energies? First of all, to accept them. As William Blake said, those who enter the gates of heaven are not those who have no passions or have curbed the passions, but rather those who have cultivated an understanding of them. So we see them for what they are. The challenge is to not suppress, whether it's fear or anger or confusion, not to suppress them. Because you know what happens when you suppress stuff. It just gets locked in your body and after a while it comes out in your kidneys or your hips or your lungs or someplace else. You know that. And on the other hand, to discover that it's possible to work with the fears and the difficult energies without acting them out. To bow to them as they arise, like the Buddha did to Mara under the Bodhi tree. Is that you, Mara? I see you. Mara said, oh, the blessed one has seen me again, kind of slinks out sadly. He knows me. Oh, it's you again, Mara. To sit with them, to breathe, to say, this is desire. This is longing. This is the longing to be seen or known or loved or fill myself up. You know, the hungry heart. Distract myself. And to hold it in the space of wisdom, of tenderness and compassion. Because 
when we're lost in that we think it's who we are and it isn't the truth. It's not who we really are. To breathe, to bow to it, to give it as much space as it needs to say, show me your dance, desire, need, longing. Oh, it's so big. It's this great big monster. Far out. Look at that. Very impressive, aren't you? Thank you for your dance. And there you are breathing and saying, well, that was a big desire, wasn't it? Now what's the right thing to do? You understand? You already know this. And then it becomes possible in our vulnerability and tenderness to act not at the effect of these, but from the place of wisdom. Julian of Norwich, that wonderful saint, said, if there be anywhere on earth a lover of God who is not, excuse me, who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for such was not shown to me. Anywhere on earth someone who's always kept safe. But this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love. You don't get what you want a lot of the time. And actually, wanting isn't the game. Awakening is. So we find the graciousness of heart with desire. Wanting. Personally. And then maybe we can understand it in the world and contribute to the sanity of the world. The same sanity is needed in relation to its opposite energy, says the Buddha. Instead of grasping aversion, aggression, anger, hatred. The strategy of pushing things away, condemning them, judging them, fearing them, hating them. It's so hard in these times because our own pain and trauma has been touched. And then you find people in some way being very sweet to one another. Are you okay? But on the other hand, there's also some short fuses out there where people are really irritable and frightened and upset. And they're overworked anyway, right? And then this adds to it. And don't think that it's easy for anybody. When we started the Gulf War and the bombing of Iraq, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master, was supposed to come and teach in America that week. And he couldn't do it. He said it made him so angry because he was in Vietnam for all those years when his country was being bombed and to see America, even if it was wrong for the Iraqis to invade Kuwait. One may have all kinds of views about that and what should be done. Even with that, to see America bombing so extensively, and now it's been 10 years, he said, I simply couldn't go to America. I was too angry. He said, and I had to breathe (laughs) for days (laughs) before I could calm myself enough to say, I actually need to go there. This is what I have to do for my own practice as well as for them. We all have ideas about how it should be done and who should do what on this earth. And we get upset when they're not doing what we think they should. I think it was Gore Vidal who said, there's no human problem on earth that could, be not, could not be solved if people would simply do as I say. Right? 
How do we work with anger, aggression, and the hatred that it can lead to, the fear and hatred of others, the racism that's there that gets touched in us? The first important thing is to acknowledge it, to see it as it is, to give it space by trusting and knowing that it is not who we really are. Again, the story I read from my colleague and friend Michael Mead in working with groups of young people, especially those who've been in gangs. And he said, I was working with a group of young people one day, this, the, and we were writing poems. You know, imagine gang kids writing poems, but Michael and Luis Rodriguez, this fantastic Latino poet, um, a number of folks going in and reading poetry that is so honest about their lives that these young men say, yeah, I'm going to write that too. And this one kid gets up and says, I can't write nothing. And Michael said to him, well, if you can't write, or the only thing that you have to say is curses, then go ahead, write as many foul things as you can, curse as thoroughly as you can. It's like my teacher Ajahn Chah when I was angry. And he said, okay, you're angry, good. He said, go in your hut, little tiny tin-roofed hut in the hot season, shut all the windows and doors, wrap yourself in your robes, sit in the middle of the fire and be angry and learn about anger. So this kid did just that. He wrote and it was vicious and horrendous and of course he insisted that I be the one to read it (laughs) out loud. Very entertaining, you know, make the adult read the most vile things you can put down. So I did. The worst things he could think of were read. And then the question was, what next? And what eventually came out of him was deep compassion. When we got to the bottom of his story, it turned out his best friend had been shot three years ago and he'd never been able to deal with it. No one had helped him. And he was carrying a corpse around and it was driving him a bit crazy. So there's anger. What do you do? Hatred. You bow to it. Is that you, Mara? You make space for it. You hear its story. You don't have to believe the story, but it will always be a story of pain or hurt or fear or injustice. It will. And you honor it. Thank you for telling me your story. You can even make a bigger space, some larger perspective. Sorrow, like the rain, falls equally on the just and the unjust. But somehow the unjust often have the just's umbrella, don't they, as it rains. In the end, the only miracle is a change of heart. That's the real miracle. It's like the two ex-prisoners of war that I speak about very often. Met years later, one says to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the first one says, no, never. And the second says, well then, they still have you in prison, don't they? So we see the energy of anger, of judgment, of hatred, and what do we do? We see the truth as well. Hatred never ends by hatred. This is the ancient and eternal law. Only by love is it healed. This is the truth. 
So how to respond even to violence and terrorism? We really don't know, do we? It's so confusing and it's morally complex. You think of Gandhi or Martin Luther King when his church was bombed and his people were killed, he still wouldn't respond with violence. Talk to war veterans. They'll tell you about war if you don't know. It's not a good thing. It's terrible. Bombing is terrible. But it doesn't mean that there isn't some need for justice. Here's the Dalai Lama, this amazing voice for nonviolence. I think about him, and I remember when Tibet was invaded by the Communist Chinese army, and he was just a young head of the state of Tibet. And I wonder if the Dalai Lama had had a really big army that could have successfully defended his monasteries and people from being taken over and killed, would he have told the army to defend their country? I think that he would have, actually. He's come over the years to embrace nonviolence more and more fully matured in it, and I admire it completely. But it's complicated. Somebody asked him, suppose, Dalai Lama, questions always ask something like, suppose you could kill somebody and save a whole lot of other lives, maybe the captain of the ship that was going to destroy all these people, and if, you, if you, you had a chance, if you could kill them, that was the only way all these people would be saved, would that be a moral bodhisattva thing to do? And when he's asked that kind of question, he has answered in the past, yes, it could be if it was done out of compassion not out of anger, because not only does hatred never end by hatred, it's just the cycles of violence in the world. But revenge, retaliation, aggression, they only lead to one thing, more suffering. But he said, all right, if you could act out of compassion to stop that person and stop other, you know, harm, maybe. And then he looks and he said, hmm, but I'm not sure I could do it. You understand? <laughs> the idea as I'm speaking about this is not to give you a simple answer because I don't have the simple answer. There isn't one. And sometimes the compassion has to be very fierce. But in the end, what will transform this human realm is not aggression and hatred, but only love and the tender heart. Nothing else can heal us. Sleepiness, dullness, denial comes, says the Buddha. You're sitting there and you get sleepy or you feel you're lazy. You're not lazy, mostly. You're tired. That's actually what the truth is. Or you're afraid. I've rarely seen lazy people. Just people who are insecure or tired. And so what do you do? You acknowledge that. I can't do this. It's too hard. There's some sense of, you know, struggle with things. And our culture is so speedy. And then we add all this stress on top of it. It's difficult. You try to meditate and you start to fall asleep. And part of it's okay. You know, in one Burmese monastery, they call sleep the poor man's nirvana, right? <laughs> There's a value to it. 
but also when we get tired there can be a level of denial in it. See if I can... Oh yeah, here's the story. There was a man driving down an interstate highway listening to the radio. Suddenly he heard this announcement. On this particular numbered interstate highway, there's a man driving in the wrong direction in the lane. Use extreme caution. He looked around and said, only one person driving in the wrong direction? There are hundreds of them. <laughs> we do it, you know. The level of blindness in ourselves and in our society is amazing. Why are people in this world angry at us? We're, we're such nice, we're such a nice country, you know, and we export such nice things, which includes the most armaments and weapons that any country has ever sold on the face of the earth, billions of dollars around the year, uh, world every year. Not to speak of the, the genre of movies that we export, or the fact that we armed to the teeth, Saddam Hussein, or the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan, we armed them completely, had them fight the Russians, and then completely abandoned them. Gee, do we have any part in this? So again, sleep, not seeing, denial. What's asked is to acknowledge it for what it is and realize this is not who we are. We can see the world with the heart of wisdom and compassion. It takes practice, breathing, coming back in the body. Restlessness, the Buddha said. Sometimes you're in denial and you're asleep, you don't want to see it. You know how that goes? No more. And then there's the other side. You get agitated. What are we going to do? We've got to do something quick. You know, that was uh, such a strong feeling in the weeks following September 11th. Stock up on food. The media was kind of fanning the fears. Get your gas masks, you know. It's like dig your fallout shelters or something. I mean, it is. So there's all this agitation. What do you do with it? What do you do with the energy of fear? You bow to it and say, Oh, fear. Mara, is that you? Tell me your story. Name it. Fear, fear. Ooh, this is scary. Fear, fear. And as you do, you make friends with it. Oh, it's just fear. I can be here with you. Fear, fear, maybe. Fear, fear, oops. Terror, terror. Sometimes it gets worse. You're acknowledging it. Fear, fear, oh, this is really bad. What will I do? Okay, let me feel this too. You breathe and you get bigger. You make the space. Say, all right, show me this dance. Because the truth is that we get agitated or restless when we're insecure. We get afraid when we're vulnerable. We want to know what's going to happen. You remember that cartoon from the San Francisco Chronicle, the nomads on their camels going across the desert. Or the, you know, the, there's, the, there's the father on his camel with his rugs and you know, bags and the mother on the camel behind and then three children on the little camels following and the the father is talking to the little child, saying, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. Right? 
Helen Keller, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And the truth is that the dangers to us are more likely to happen in an auto accident or a heart attack or something than anthrax, you know, or whatever you're afraid of. There are dangers and there's nothing. Security is mostly a superstition. Human life is a gamble. And in the end, death wins. That's how it works. It's true, isn't it? You know, so what are we going to do? Be afraid all the time? That is not who you are. There is the small sense of self, the body of fear. And if we believe it and invest it with reality, then it takes us over. Mullah Nasruddin, the, the Middle Eastern sage and holy fool, went into a tea shop one day and boasted. He said, one day out in the desert, I caused a whole tribe of bloodthirsty bandits to run, he was boasting. And his dubious companion said, yeah, how did you do this, Mullah? And he said, it was simple. I ran and they ran after me. (laughs) This is the way that it works. If you feed your fear, you get more fear. And if we as a society feed fear, we get more fear. But if instead we breathe and say, this is the frightened mind, come back to our place on this earth. We belong on this earth. We don't have to live in the body of fear. There is a great compassionate heart that is vulnerable and open and brave, and that is your true nature. One of the Indian sages said, Look carefully at the suffering you encounter to see whether it can be corrected or not. If it can be corrected, put all your effort into doing so. If there's nothing to be done about it, why cling to it and be unhappy or frightened? The unhappiness and fear only adds to the suffering in the world. So this is really a time to practice individually and collectively to learn to steady the heart, to rest on the earth, to trust the one who knows in us. Desire, greed, hatred, prejudice, fear, delusion, denial, they're very strong forces. The force of compassion and the great heart of wisdom is vast enough to hold them all. Even your doubts, I don't know if I can do it. I can't even figure it out. It is so complex. What what should we do? How should I act? What do we do with this? Nobody has a simple answer, you know. It's like Zen Master Ryokan, wonderful, beloved Japanese poet. Spring morning, My begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) 
It's not like we're supposed to know the answer, how to fix it and figure it all out. We do know, and the answers are so simple. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. We know that. That this world is in flux, it's impermanent, it changes all the time. As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, when we realize the truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourself in nirvana. What really matters if you want to doubt? What matters in your human life? One great famous uh, psychiatrist was conducting a training of young therapists and he posed a question to them. Who is better off in the orchestra, the first violinist or the second violinist? And there was this whole kind of heated discussion whether it was best to be kind of the alpha male or female, whatever, on top. I don't think females have alphas, do they? Let's fix that one. But anyway... um, you know, whether it was better to have all that success and, 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 you know, adulation or whatever, but also there was the pressure of it and the ambition that it took to get there and so forth. There was better to play and enjoy being the second and do it for its own sake and kind of going back and forth. Who is better off, the first violin or the second violin? They went back and forth about this for a long time and couldn't answer it. And finally they said to the master, so who's better off? And he said... Whoever loves well is better off. That's really the answer. First, second, third violin, as you like. What matters when we look in this life at the end of it are such few things. Did we love well? Did we live true to our own heart and life, live fully? Did we learn to let go of all the small things and rest or trust in this great human and vastness that we're born into. Because that's what brings peace to the earth. And it's not far away, it's here in us, in any breath. In these times, you are called upon by the women and children in Afghanistan, by the people in Israel and Palestine, by those in our prisons, in our inner cities, by your friends, by the leaders in London and Washington and Moscow and Delhi, by all that lives on this earth in these times, you are called upon to practice and remember what you really value. To make the space to see all these energies, the longing, which in the end is just the longing for wholeness, you know. All those desires, those little desires. My teacher, Nisargadot, said, you want, the problem is you don't want enough. You should want it all. You should want the connection to the whole of life. And the fears and angers that really are here to teach us that that is not who we really are. The insecurity that we have touched as Ralph Waldo Emerson writes, people wish to be settled. Only so far as they are unsettled is there any hope for them. In these unsettled times, 
there is a secret lesson, even a kind of grace, not in the tragedy, whether in New York or Afghanistan, but in your own vulnerability and fear, there is a grace that said, now is the time to do the work of the heart. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, rest in an unmoving suchness. If desire and fear and aggression arise, they are false. Do not believe their stories, but rest in the heart of compassion and you will come to live in what is true. From a Chan master, Shunhua. This is our human realm, folks. We all know it. 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows, birth, death, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. It is possible, it is our birthright to sit in the midst as a Buddha and find a freedom of heart in all these realms. Pray, if you will, for the soldiers, for the women and children, for the leaders, for the peoples of every nation, Pray as the Tibetans in prison teach. Pray for the enemy, whoever your enemy is, especially they need it. And let these times soften your heart and open that tenderness that is the healing of the world. I end with a poem from our baker, Ed Brown the Tassajara bread book and other great Zen teachings that he wrote some many years ago. Any moment preparing this meal, we could be poison gas 30,000 feet in the air, soon to fall out, touching leaf, frond, and fur, everything in sight would cease. So that was the fears Fifteen years ago in the Cold War when he wrote this, it's not so far away, is it, anymore? Some kind of fear. And still we cook, he says, putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish and reassure those close and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell. Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I have withheld for so long. Let's sit for a moment. back to your own breath and body, to this heart and mind.
And like the Buddha, remember that you too can see this world with the eyes of wisdom and the heart of compassion. Let's do a very simple chant to end. The chant is just one word, namo, which means to bow to. In India, when you meet someone, the greeting is namaste, which is I honor the divine within you, or I see you, I see who you really are. And the root of that word in Sanskrit and Pali is namo, to bow to, so we'll chant that. Bow to the energies of fear and greed and hatred. I see you too. And bow to all those who are caught in them. And then bow to that possibility that we all know inside of freedom and compassion no matter what. And then after we chant, we'll chant Namo nine times and then go out into the autumn evening. Na mo na mo na mo add harmony na Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.